All the burning questions are starting to mount. Can the Phillies bring up someone like Nick Williams or Scott Kingery? Are they going to be able to trade someone like Pat Neshek or Daniel Nava? And can the Phillies actually trade for Giancarlo Stanton? All that and more this week, plus some draft talk with Jeff Israel of philliesminorthoughts.com. Little Adam Hazley talk. Let's do it. The Phillies Nation podcast is live. Yo, Phillies Nation. Welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast. Episode Lucky 13. Go to philliesnation.com for all of your Phillies news, rumors, information, and more. My name is Tim Malcolm. I'm the editorial director of philliesnation.com. The podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash philliesnation. And you can check us out at philliesnation on Twitter, which is at philliesnation, Instagram at philliesnation underscore, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. The show today, we have Jeff Israel of philliesminorthoughts.com back on with us. We had him on a couple weeks ago to preview the first-year player draft that was last week, and we brought him back to talk about what the Phillies did. Little Adam Hazley talk, he was the first pick that the Phillies selected, uh, number eight overall, and also some of the other players that they drafted, and kind of the overall philosophy of the Phillies draft this year. Tons of college players. We'll talk with Jeff about that. Also, Dan Walsh is on the show from philliesnation.com. We're going to talk a little bit about what's possible with guys like Daniel Nava and Pat Neshek, if there's any trade value there. Also talking about prospects and timelines with like Nick Williams and Scott Kingery. Not seeing them right now, obviously, so we'll uh, have to hold out probably on that one. I also want to quickly just get a little plug out there for a new podcast that we'll be doing uh, starting the next few weeks. It's called Playing the Rube, and it's me and Dan Walsh. We are going to be simulating the Philadelphia Phillies 2009, trying to do better than Ruben Amaro did as general manager. So the idea is to win a World Series and have sustained excellence from 2009 and beyond over Out of the Park Baseball. It's a really fun experiment that we're doing. We're going to have a lot of stuff on the website as we go through it, but the podcast will be a great accompaniment to that. So please... Listen for that. Watch for that. It'll come out probably in about two weeks or so. We're going to get the first one up. We've been recording. It's really fun stuff. As for the Phillies themselves in 2017, they're not good. I don't know if you've kept track with what's going on with the big league club, but they stink, man. They stink. They got swept by the Arizona Diamondbacks. Really tough loss on Sunday. Hector Neris blew the game in the ninth inning, and then they lost it in the tenth. It's just unbelievable at this point because the Phillies... It's games go many different ways with the Phillies this year, right? We've seen a lot of blowouts early on in the year. We've seen, um, you know, this team get six innings out of a starter. Uh, this is the more recent trend, six innings out of a starter, and maybe they get a lead or earn a tie, and then they blow it somehow on the seventh, eighth, or ninth. That happened again on Sunday. Most of the time this year, it's been the starter goes only four or five innings, and the middle relief just completely loses control of the game, and we lose seven to three. Either way, the Phillies are finding every way possible to lose baseball games, and they lost 5-4 to four to Arizona on Sunday. 22-46 and 46 on the year, and according to Corey Seidman of CSNPhilly.com, no National League team has been that poor in the first 68 games 
since the 2013 Miami Marlins. So that's not good. Not good at all. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the Phillies are not good. Uh, we've talked about them ad nauseum at this point. One of them is the pitching has been historically, not historically, I should say, but the pitching has been weirdly bad. There's been a lot of bad performances from the starting pitching staff that nobody saw coming. Jeremy Hellickson is sort of deflated in a lot of ways. Vince Velasquez can't get himself through five innings. Aaron Nola has been hurt and not hurt. And when he's been healthy recently, he hasn't been able to go too far into games. He gives up a big home run or something. Jared Olicuff has not had a very good season. Um, it's been kind of across the board. Everybody's been falling apart there. And then there's the offense. Not getting good offensive performances by most of the guys on this team, including the guys we picked up over the offseason, uh, namely Michael Saunders. And then the guys who are supposed to be stars on this team, of course, Odubel Herrera and Michael Franco, really not having the seasons that we hoped they would. Now, with Herrera, he'd been hitting a little bit better recently. A lot of doubles, of course, in the first part of the month of June. And his fielding's been very good. I have no qualms with Herrera. I think he's a very good player, and he'll bounce back. He's going to, even if he has a bad season at the plate, there's still a lot of hope for him to be better next year because he's proven for two consecutive years that he can play at a high level in center field, a position that he only just started playing a few years ago. But Michael Franco is, of course, the name that we continue to come back to as far as not getting himself going. And is there a real future for this player? And Franco up until about June 10th, had been showing that he is having yet another season where he can't get himself going. And how long is that? Are we going to be able to sit with that as fans? But in the last few games, Franco has actually played better. Since June 11th, in eight games, he has 10 hits, 30 at-bats, so he's hitting an easy 333. 444 on base percentage, 567 slugging percentage, including a home run and four doubles. So that's pretty good stuff. His OPS is over one, 1.011. That's great to see, right? He has raised his average in that time from 208 to 223. He's raised his OBP from 260 to 285, and he's raised his slugging percentage from 598 to 652. All good stuff. But we've seen this before with Michael Franco. He'll go through about a week-long tear where he hits a couple home runs. He makes people feel good about themselves. And we might think that, oh, this guy has a real future here. And then it just goes away. That's going to be the test here over the next couple weeks. Will that continue for Michael Franco? We need to see sustained excellence from Michael Franco. Because if not, I don't know what he is. He might not even be a role player on a good team. He might be a guy that the Phillies have to shutter away within a year or two because the Phillies need to get a better player at third base. And really the big theme of this is finding a player that the Phillies can build around and having a superstar. This franchise doesn't quite have one in the prospect bin. They don't have one in the major league level as far as we can tell. Odubel Herrera is the closest to a superstar on this team, but he's not a superstar. And that's not his fault or anything. It's just how he plays. He's a really good player. And he could be a team leader. He could be whatever he wants to be. But the stats show over the first couple of years, he's probably not a superstar. He's not on the level of Mike Trout or Manny Machado or Giancarlo Stanton, which brings us to the other big story of the week. And I don't know if there's a big story, but it's something that has come up recently and we have to kind of bandy about with it. The Phillies potentially looking at Giancarlo Stanton. Now, how much of this is true? Who knows? But Nick Cafardo, who has a piece every week in the Boston Globe, a big Sunday column, 
and he always writes about all the rumors going on and things that he hears from other GMs and other scouts in the league and things like that. Well, this week he wrote about Giancarlo Stanton. According to Cafardo, quote, None of us know where the Marlins sale will lead and what sidebars will come as a result, but this has become one of the most talked about subjects among baseball people. One reason there's so much intrigue is the elephant in the room, Giancarlo Stanton and his enormous contract. By the way, it's a 13-year, $325 million contract. He will still have to be paid about $218 million over the rest of the contract, okay? Continuing here with Cafardo. There's been plenty of speculation as to how it will end up, but there's been significant chatter in a few organizations, most notably the Phillies, which tends to indicate the Marlins could have a route to dealing Stanton. One scenario I heard in Philadelphia this past week was that the Phillies would not only seek Stanton, but would also need Christian Yelich in any deal with Miami. The reason is that the Phillies don't have the best outfield prospects. It's actually kind of a weird ending there from the Cafardo because the Phillies don't have bad outfield prospects. Nick Williams has been decent, and I think he should probably get a call up soon. We'll talk about that in a second. Dylan Cousins has been obviously very good this year at times and looks like he's a really good prospect, clearly. You know, beyond that, they have Mickey Moniak, who's in Lakewood. It's going to take him a little while to get to the show, but very good outfield prospect. And then, of course, Adam Hazley, who they just drafted, could actually move up very quickly in the Phillies organization. And I'll talk more about that with Jeff Israel. So it's not as if the Phillies don't have good outfield prospects. I think the problem is, is that the Phillies don't have a superstar. And Giancarlo Stanton clearly will fit the bill. 27 years old, 277 average, 358 OBP, all good numbers this year, but then he has the 542 slugging percentage. 17 home runs, 15 doubles, doing Giancarlo Stanton things this year, having a good season. Now, Christian Yelich would have to be in that deal. That seems amazing to me because he's the kind of young player that if the Marlins want to rebuild, they can rebuild around Christian Yelich. 25 years old, he's hitting 277 with a 351 OBP and a 403 slugging percentage. Seven home runs this year, 11 doubles, and pretty good walk-to-strikeout numbers. 27 walks to 58, 51 strikeouts. It's really good stuff. He's the kind of player that almost makes Odubel Herrera redundant, so I don't know how much weight you can put into a deal like that. Plus, Aaron Altair has had a very good season, and I think the Phillies are probably happy with him in the corner for now. It's the other corner that's the problem. But I can certainly see Giancarlo Stanton being a player that the Phillies might be interested in. I think at the end of the day, the Phillies would be interested in any kind of big-time player who can give them a lot of home runs and a lot of butts in the seats. Whether it's Stanton or Mike Trout or Bryce Harper or Manny Machado, the Phillies are going to be in on one of these players. I don't know if Stanton's the right deal, though. It's a lot of money. It's a ton of money. And they'll have to give away some prospects. And if they want Christian Yelich in that deal, they're going to have to give away more prospects. So I don't know. I mean, it would sound great to have Stanton in Philadelphia. He could be in the team till 2020, which is the earliest he can opt out of his deal. The deal is for longer than that. But, you know, I think the real mark of this whole story, and whatever rumor is out there, is that the Phillies are looking for a superstar. They might not get it this season, but watch the offseason. The Phillies might be in really hard on someone who's going to give them a lot of years and a lot of big-time play. They really do need it. I want to bring in our old friend Dan Walsh of philliesnation.com to talk about, well, to talk about, is it time? Because we are now in mid-June, almost late June, I should say, and it's about that time for the Phillies to maybe start exploring who's available in a trade, 
roster turnover, all that good stuff. We've been waiting for prospects to be called up. Who knows if that's going to happen. But let's talk about that a little bit, Dan. Uh, first off, looking at what's happening in Lehigh Valley, and I think if there's anybody who's making a case to be in the majors, it's Nick Williams. Um, do you think it's time for Nick? Do you think there's anything holding him back at this point? Do you think the Phillies are being a little uh, conservative, too conservative at this point? He's definitely playing well enough where I could see him being a guy who they would call up, especially as poorly as Saunders has played. Um, it's possible that they're being conservative because the kind of response to his performance last year was that, um, you know, that it, it was kind of a, a mental growth, right, that he, that he needed, a maturity that, that they were waiting for from him. And, and he's shown signs of that this year. But it's possible that they are worried that if they do bring him up and then he falters, you know, and he, and he struggles a lot when he does come up, maybe they're worried that that would set him back mentally. Is there like a – I'm only reading what I'm reading, right? You're like, I'm not there on the field with the pigs every day, and I don't know what's going on. But our Corey Sharp spoke with Nick a few weeks back, and Nick had mentioned that last year he was definitely not in the right headspace. He was thinking he was already going to be in Philadelphia, and that didn't happen. This year it's different. He's not thinking about it so much. But I feel like there's a lot of stories that have come out in the last couple of weeks where Nick Williams is insistently talking about how he's not thinking about coming to Philadelphia, which that seems weird when you're talking about something that you're saying you're not doing, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like when someone tells you don't think about an elephant, right? And then all you can do is think about an elephant. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it did seem like last year he was pressing and, and kind of trying to swing himself into – citizens bank park right like if he just swings hard enough maybe he'll luck into a home run and then find himself in philadelphia the next morning you know as a call-up um but he's also you know in the offseason worked on his swing he's been quoted saying things like i don't know how i ever hit anything last year with the swing that i had right so he's he's clearly willing to make the adjustments that he needs to make in order to earn his way up instead of just kind of lucking into it or um or just kind of, you know, hitting, uh, swinging hard enough that, that they call him up. I mean, the numbers are pretty good. They're not full out of your chair good. It's not like he's Reese Hoskins with the bat. But he's hitting two seventy seven. He's got an OPS of eight twenty eight. The strikeout-to-walk ratio is not good, which I think might still be part of the reason why he's down there still. 78 strikeouts to nine walks. I mean, that's not close to acceptable in my book. But looking at the Major League team and how we have you know, viable corner outfielder right now in Aaron Altair, and then a veteran we'll talk about in a second who's playing very well in Daniel Nava, I think it's probably about the time because there's no other options to play the outfield, and Nick Williams seems to be the best option, and he can get everyday time out there. Michael Saunders clearly is not the answer right now, right? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and another thing that I like about Nick Williams is that he is – and he certainly has the potential to be a player who's very exciting to watch. You know, if you follow the Iron Pigs at all, you'll know that uh, it seems like at least once a week, sometimes more often, you'll hear like, oh, Nick Williams robbed a home run today. Nick Williams yeah. made a great play in the outfield today. So even if he came up and they said, don't worry about your stats, keep working on your swing, you know, uh, uh, make sure that you're playing good defense. I'm sure he'd play just as good a defense as Saunders has. He probably wouldn't hit for a much lower average than Saunders is. You know what I mean? So at least then we could have that kind of energy that we're looking for from this team. Even if Nick Williams doesn't hit the ground running, he'll at least still be able to work on some things. He'll have some life in the lineup, uh, and he'll be kind of a new face for us to be watching. 
So what about uh, Scott Kingery? Because he's also been on everybody's mind this year. He's having such an outstanding season in Reading. He's in that double-A level, so there is that sort of layer of, well, is he ready to even face triple-A pitching, let alone major league pitching? But the numbers speak for themselves. He's hitting 304. He's got a 982 OPS, 18 home runs, leads double-A baseball. I think he still might lead minor league baseball. He's having an exceptional year, and that's not even what he's good at. He's good at running. He's got 17 stolen bases and two caught stealings. I think it's time for at least him to go to Lehigh Valley. But do you think at all that it's worth debating because Cesar Hernandez is out for such a long time that he should be in Philadelphia? Well, listen, when Jesmoel Valentin got hurt, right, and his season is probably done, and he was playing second base for the Iron Bigs. In other words, creating an opening for Kingery to be promoted, right. you know, as soon as they wanted him to be. When the team still didn't promote him to Lehigh Valley right away, that suggests to me that, you know, other than the numbers, they're looking for something from Kingery uh, for him to improve on before he before he's promoted again. So if they're still looking for something at double A before he reaches triple A with no one blocking him at triple A, it tells me that there's something in his game that would not go well in the majors. I know that the stats are great. I know that we're all excited about him, but they, you know, the people in charge of this see more of him than we do through, you know, highlight reels and stat sheets. So, um, so I'm going to kind of defer to their judgment. Now, again, I would love to at least see him at triple a, I don't know, you know, what it is that's keeping him from that promotion, but it does make me think that we should kind of throw some water on the fire of calling him up to the majors right away. Okay. So, if Kingery isn't coming up anytime soon, if Williams probably isn't up at this point, what can we look forward to the rest of the way here? So maybe some trades or something. Um, we have a reliever who's exceptional this year in Pat Neshek, who has a 0.67 ERA. Don't ask me why he was out there in the seventh inning on Sunday against Arizona and not later in the game, but he's pitching really well. Is he going? And if he goes, what can the Phillies get for him? Well, he better go, right? I mean, he, yeah. he's the. There's no reason to keep him because he's a free agent after this year, um, as far as I know, and he is kind of the only player who's been consistently exceptional for the Phillies this year. And it's kind of sad. Sounds sad to say that about a middle reliever, um, <laughs> but it's true, you know. And he's kind of been exceptional for his entire career, pretty quietly. He had a few rough years in the middle, but other than that, he's been an above-average pitcher every single season. So. Um, you know, if they trade him, the demand for relievers is probably as high as it's ever been, uh, and the return for relievers has been very good. Um, you remember uh, we traded Papelbon. Somehow, despite having no leverage in that trade at all, because we were so eager to get him out of here, we got a pretty decent return for Papelbon. Um, and you remember, right. that's right, we got Nick Pavetta for for Papelbon, um, and he's you know turned out to be a, a decent prospect for us with you know some potential to be a mid-to-back rotation starter. And um, and Araldis Chapman last year. Now, listen, I'm not saying that Pat Neshek is Araldis Chapman, um, but Araldis Chapman got a sizable return. Uh, you know, the Yankees got four prospects back for him last year when they traded him. Right. So, um, you know, whatever is like a standard deviation or two less than those four prospects, uh, maybe that's what we can be looking for from uh, in return for Pat Neshek. And then finally, Daniel Nava. And this is the funny thing that uh, if you look at baseball reference, they show you the top players and wins above replacement on the team. Number one is Pat Neshek. Number two is Daniel Nava. Tell me that that is the saddest thing you've ever heard 
from a team playing in mid-July that their number one uh, player with war is a reliever and the number two player is the fourth, sort of fifth outfielder. It's really bad. Uh, but now It's play- really bad. Uh, you know, and, and like if I'm just talking casually to other fans, for when two players that they might forget are on the team lead the team in war, it's not a good sign. No, no. But war, but novice playing very well this year. He's got a 2.92 average and a 8.46 OPS. What do you think? Is he someone that the Phillies can actually get something from? I feel like you know if they try to get anything from Nava, it's going to be like a flyer sort of minor leaguer. You know, I mean the Phillies can hope to get like. I don't know, Josh Tobias, who they traded to Boston for Clay Buckholtz. Uh, Tobias is playing very well in Boston's, I think, AAA squad right now, or AA squad. But can they get something for Nava like that? They could get something for Nava, and part of the reason I'm so confident in saying that is just the reminder that when the Phillies traded Marlon Byrd, right, and he was coming off like a so-so year, you know, fairly average, you know, I can't complain about his performance, Um his OPS plus was 109. So, you know, a little above average. They traded Bird and they got Ben Lively. And, you know, Ben Lively isn't a top prospect or anything like that, but he's a serviceable starter. He's been the best starter he, on the team this year, I think. He has, he has. <laughs> and I want to kind of I want to kind of temper those expectations a little bit too, but I can't <laughs> yeah. I can't complain about what he's done so far. So, even if they take Nava and they trade him for, you know, a back-end starter, a potential innings eater, like, you know, fitting the mold of Lively, that's still a pretty good return for a guy like him who could be valuable on a team. You know, just chew up some innings, try not to get your bullpen too worn down, uh, you know, soak up some time on the mound. Um, But a player of that caliber, I think, would be a great return for a guy who is, uh, you know, a non-roster invitee to spring training. Yeah, if they can get anything for Nava, I think that'd be great. Uh, It's just a shame that we're talking about, you know, getting value for Daniel Nava and Pat Neshek in, in June already. And we're not talking about anything more thrilling at this point. It uh, is. We're, we're hoping that guys like Saunders and Hellickson and maybe even Kendrick would turn into something. Um, and, and Kendrick, still, Kendrick, Kendrick still can. Might, Kendrick has played well. Yeah, absolutely. He has. He's actually really impressed me a lot. But um, it does seem like the easiest to move would be Neshek and Nava. Yeah. Fun times in Philadelphia. Uh, Dan Walsh, we'll talk to you later on the podcast. Absolutely. I wanted to bring in Jeff Israel from philliesminorthoughts.com. We had him on a couple weeks ago to talk about what the Phillies might do in the first-year player draft, which was last week. And they did a lot of things in the first-year player draft, obviously, and we want to talk with Jeff about those things. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the podcast again. Good to be back, Tim. Good to be back. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, man, and uh, thanks for doing it. But uh, So first off, kind of on a meta level, you know, how the Phillies did on the draft and what you think their philosophy was overall. I think a lot of people would say that, you know, they went a little safe early on with a lot of college picks. But what's your thought on how they did in this draft? Well, a little safe would be underestimating it. They definitely went <laughs> safe at this point. Um, and, you know, I thought that they would – and, you know, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, um, my my thought was that this was a draft – where there's probably a little more risk involved. And, you know, I, my thought was is that one of their first few picks should have been maybe a high school little arm because that's where the deepest part of the draft, in my opinion, was. We're labeling between high school and college and then arms and hitters. But, you know, 
they they've been hinting at it for they were hinting at it for weeks that they were seriously looking at trying to get as many not just the safe route but they were really looking at college hitters and that's exactly why and there weren't many college hitters out there and that's exactly why they went Adam Hazley in the first round it was either going to be him or Paven Smith as a mm-hmm. teammate at Virginia and they and you know they went that direction action and I can't fault them for it because you know the recent track record of top 10 college picks who are hitters hitters it has been pretty good over the last years with guys like Ed Kyle Schwarber or George Springer or um, Chris Bryant. You know, these are just guys, as I'm listening off Astros and Cubs, who the Phillies are modeling themselves after or trying to. But, you know, my, my whole thought was even if they went that route, they would go with their second or third round pick and go after a high school arm and – you know, when the name Spencer Howard came up up in the second round, it was kind of almost a shock. Yeah. And it wasn't a pick that I was in love with at first. I started to fall in love with it a little bit later. But, you know, for the most part in this draft, they stuck to their guns. You know, eight of their first ten picks were col- were college or JUCO related. Eight of the- and then three, and I believe the cat. I think the cat. I think I wrote down 29 college and JUCO related players in the of their 40 picks. Wow. It's, so, and that's where most people go because every because high school players after the on day three are begin to become tough signings. Sure. So, overall, I thought the draft was okay. It it was it was a solid draft. It didn't. It didn't end up wowing me because I thought that they could have gone a different – because I thought that early on they could have gone a slightly different direction, even if they went with the college hitter. hitter. But I that's probably where I'm at. So maybe like a solid B-minus for this draft if I had to give a grade on it. it okay. I mean, I, honestly, I don't think that's bad because, you know, at least they no, didn't and I don't pick – yeah, at least they didn't pick guys who, you know, were completely off the board the whole time through and, you know, nobody really knew what they were going after and, um, you know, B-minus isn't bad. You know, you see what happens with a lot of these guys and, you know, who knows. I was going to say let, let's dive into, you know, the the players, some of the individual guys. Um, and let's start with Adam Hazley because, obviously, as the eighth overall pick, you know, that's the name that people are going to really follow over the next couple of years. And he can move pretty quickly up the system. I mean, this is a guy who it seems like he could he'll probably start maybe in Lakewood, maybe in Williamsport, depending on how they want to play him in center or right field. Um, but then he should move pretty quickly. Like, what do you see out of him, you know, over the next year or so? Like, do you think he's going to be knocking on the door by 2019? That is the hope. And if the bat stays as advanced as it's been in college, he ended up walking – 111 times to 103 throughout his college career. It actually took a spike this year because he actually walked 44 times and struck out 21. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like that before. But to, to actually answer the Williamsport to Lakewood question quickly, it sounds like it's going to be Williamsport 
because they want to keep Mickey Moniak and Adam Hazley both in center field for the time being in the rest of this year. So with Moniak entrenched in center in Lakewood, it's probably going to be Hazley sitting in Williamsburg, which may not be a bad thing. He may end up jumping to Clearwater if he's that good of a hitter yeah. by next season. He's in, or they could just jump the whole process together and put him in Clearwater right away, but I doubt that will be the case. Yeah. Hey, I will say this. Hazley's projection is to be a top-of-the-order hitter. And while Johnny Almaraz projected the team scouting director, you know, amateur scouting director, projected him to maybe be a 20 to 25 homer guy, which would suggest above average power, I'm just not there with that because I see a lot of – I see maybe average, which may be more – towards the line of like 15 to 18 home runs, which isn't bad. Yeah. But it's, but I, you know, I see him, I don't, it's kind of weird because I actually see him like over exploding, if that makes any sense. And where he, you know, he ends up over rotating, eating, he gets out a little in front on the pitches. It's just, so he may end up hitting some singles because he keeps the bat in the zone, but I just don't see, like, 20 to 25 homer power. That said, it's a very, it's still a very solid pick. I end up actually think he's going to move up being a corner outfielder and not a center fielder. Mm-hmm. I do think his body will fill out a little bit more than, let's say, Mickey Moniak. I think Moniak will have the body type to kind of just stay in center field more so. Oh, but Hazley will end up being somewhere between a top-of-the-order hitter or the floor of a very good fourth outfielder, which isn't such a bad thing. My whole thing is, is that I think he's going to have problems down and out and then up in the zone on with higher velocity. And it's kind of showed in the Cape Cod lead last year because he struck out 34 times to 14 walks us which isn't which is okay but that's a lot of swing and miss it's because he was striking out about 20 22 percent of the time off the top of my head right here right so he did make adjustments he added a leg lift which actually helped him see the ball better time the ball better and that ended up leading to more power along with a heavy analytics approach where he started to look more, you know, started to learn more about the swing path and the launch angles that he could do. So a little bit more loft in his swing. So maybe he can get, maybe at his peak in like a two or three year stretch, he can get to 20 home runs consistently. I just think he's just going to end up with average power and just be a top of the order hitter. Hitter. it it sounds it sounds like I know a lot of people have talked about Jacoby Ellsbury and he himself had said that Jacoby was kind of the player he looked up to and influenced his game from. But it's almost as if you're describing Odubel Herrera part two. Am I wrong in that? He he won't be as erratic, I would okay. say. Because I think he definitely will have the I think he is more disciplined. A lot of Virginia hitters nowadays are a lot more like within themselves. I just take this heavy analytics approach. So I don't think he's that kind of guy. So I don't think he's a Dubal Herrera. 
Yeah. I will say this. He's pro- he may be the more developed version of Mickey Moniak at this point. Okay. Because that, that's basically how Mickey Moniak is going to end up projecting, which goes to my – which actually went to my point. When the pick went down and I ended up recapping the next day, I didn't mind the player. I ended up minding the philosophy, and they yeah. went back to that because I thought that they could have gone – Maybe in another direction. I had him like fifth or sixth on my big board that day. Hey. Right. So. Yeah, because we, 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 talk, we talked about in our talk a couple of weeks ago that it was looking like Paven Smith, and we thought, oh, another first baseman who can hit. You know, we already have a couple of those in the system. Well, they basically got another center fielder who can, you know, kind of be a top of the order guy, which they have a couple of those guys in the system. So, uh, yeah, it just, I mean, it feels like they're kind of just stocking up on, you know, a certain kind of player right now. But now here's the thing, though. It is redundancy, but this is a – I would say this is a much better redundancy to have. Sure. Because they're, they're – even if – because, as I mentioned, even if Paven Smith and Reese Hoskins and Tom Joseph all develop into solid players, you're going to trade two and get good value back. This is better value because these are center fielders who could hit, like Moniac yeah. and – you know, uh, and Hazley, and even Cornelius Randolph, who's not even a center fielder, but is, from a hitter perspective, the same type of hitter as they are, if they sure. all projected out. And that's basically their last three first-round picks right there in a yep. nutshell. Yep. So my thought was is that they could have went creative and gone for the college arm, arm because I don't think Hazley's going to get you that much more cost-cutting, maybe like two hundred fifty to 300000 We're not sure yet. Because all these signings are kind of trickling out, and I think there have only been two reported signings for the Phillies thus far. Right. So I think Paven would have gotten you more only because he was a first baseman. I don't think Hazley gets you more because he's a center fielder. And that may be the wrong philosophy of the hat, the wrong thought process to have, but that's my belief, Keith, anyway. Okay. Um, let, let's talk about Spencer Howard because you had mentioned him just earlier and in your write-up of the first day. And I feel like a lot of people in their write-ups after the first day were sour on the Phillies and then started to see more Spencer Howard clips and thought, okay, maybe there's more to this kid. Uh, what, what made you kind of come around a little bit on him that I think every, everybody else is sort of coming around on with him too? Okay, so the funny story about this is that I end up finishing my write-up probably around midnight that night after the pick. And I wake up, I have to get, so I had, so before I went to my day job, uh, it's like five in the morning and I'm like, all right, I got to go through one last edit. <laughs> and all of us, and I'm thinking to myself, there has to be a video. And then all of a sudden there's a video of Spencer Howard after not being any last night. So, right. <laughs> which, which was kind of funny because the, the prospect pipeline, which is where the, it came from, you know, it was six hours, you know, it, they got it that day, which meant they were holding out on me the entire time. So, <laughs> you know, after watching the video, I could see where Johnny was coming from when talking about his fastball because it cuts and sinks and moves everywhere, and it's got life on it. Yeah. So I definitely – and it's – and he shows very good deception of the pitch. 
And he's got a good body body type at 6'3", 205. He could probably add maybe 10 more pounds, but he's pretty much got a starter's build at this point. And he was probably the best pitcher in the Big West. And the Big West is a pretty good – is a very good baseball conference. Not so much in all the other sports that you hear of, but between Cal State Fullerton and Long Beach State, it is examples. These are some of the top college programs in the country. And uh-huh. he had good command – and then good strikeout numbers. numbers. His fastball is 92-94, which is a far outcry from where it was when he entered as a walk-on freshman, which was like 88 to 89, basically. So he started to get more velocity. He's got a pretty good changeup. His slider is the pitch that sold me because there are times – he can throw it a little harder and starts to look more like a cutter. That has less command. But the slider itself, when he has it in that 83 range, has a lot of lot of movement on it where he can backdoor it, or it on left-handers handers and make right-handers look foolish. So, at very worst, he's a really good power reliever. But I definitely see a mid-rotation start. The only thing I would argue is what Johnny said, is what Johnny Almaraz said, and that he's a frontline star because that I label as a one or a two. I see him more as mid rotation, which is three or four. Or that's not that's not bad though at that level though. And absolutely not. And his mechanics are still pretty, and his mechanics are good, good as well. So I don't really have a problem with him anymore, or or so. After that, the rest of the draft was just like, all right, could they do something else? Now, they, he will probably end up being an underslot deal, mm-hmm. deal definitely. But and a lot and the funny thing is, a lot of these other picks could be underslot deals as well, where they could get created with later round picks. Right. Uh, well, speaking of later round picks, because uh, this was uh, the the big pick in the eleventh round and. If you want to talk a little bit about why the 11th round is somewhat important for teams in the draft, uh, that'd be great. But they picked Jake Holmes, who's a shortstop, high school shortstop, and then just recently it uh, was announced that the Phillies had actually come to terms with him and signed him for $500,000, which is much more than he would have gotten in, you know, at a regular uh, uh, at the regular slot there, which is very small. So talk about Holmes and the 11th round and why that's important, but why Holmes, you know, what you see out of him and why you think the Phillies uh, have a good or bad pick there. So so this was a good – so this was definitely one of those picks where it is obviously an overslot deal because 500K is – in the 11th round is, you know, yeah. 500K. That's like, that's like second-round money, basically. No. Yeah, so that is mid-round money. So that's like fourth, fifth-round money, money right there. Okay. And – that was actually where he was projected to go. He ended up falling because nobody wanted to pay the price tag. And I think the Phillies found, said, you know what? We're going to get enough underslot deals, deals to make this happen in the first 10 rounds, um, and we'll drag him away from Arizona State. He is a very interesting player. I think he, while he does have length in his swing and he may be a bit concerning, I have questions on how he swings with his lower half have a little bit. I think he needs better timing. But he's a 6'4", 195-pound shortstop. 
He has above average arm strength. He has the athleticism to stick it short. He may eventually outgrow the position to be a third baseman. Baseman, And obviously, with that length in the swing, swing and miss will be a part of his game, particularly with breaking balls. But I do see him filling out enough to have at least good average power, maybe even more than that. At maybe slightly more, we're talking anywhere between 15 to 20 home run power. So he could be a very interesting, versatile bat off the bench in the future with the chance to possibly start if he can get his timing much better than it is right now Mm -hmm. uh, and start hitting better. And there are a couple other guys on day three that I found intriguing and some guys on day two that also caught my attention, like the eighth-round selection, Jordani Mesquita. That was a wild story. That was a wild story. That that had to be maybe one of the craziest stories. So, you know, just in case anybody hasn't heard. So, Philly selected him in the eighth round, but they were originally going to sign him back in the winter. Winter. But it turned out that, as an international free agent, but it turned out that he, that apparently he attended high school in Hazleton in PA. And... While he never played there, he still attended high school, which made him ineligible to sign. So the Phillies ended up, you know, drafting it. So the Phillies ended up drafting him in the eighth round and reportedly just signed him to $50,000, which is about one hundred and ten dollars under the slot. So that's probably where they got some of the money to sign Jake Holmes as well. And I'm assuming that's probably where they were, how much they were going to give him anyway as an international draftee. But I... I like the things I've heard about him. It's just another added southpaw depth to a weak system of southpaws. And, you know, he'll throw 91 to 94, has a good breaking ball. Obviously, that's all the information that anybody knows about him. But any southpaw depth with that type of stuff is good southpaw depth. And, you know, there are – and, you know, Holmes isn't the only shortstop that they drafted. Dalton Guthrie out of Florida in the sixth round. Um, defensive wizard who had arm problems which this year that hindered him at the plate. It, and then Nick Maton, who's like 6'1", who's a 6'1 shortstop, could be an interesting future utility player here, here in the future with average power. power not as good as Jake Holmes but still an interesting selection in the seventh round and maybe a slight overslot value out of high school. But these are – so the Phillies definitely have a lot of interesting names, names that they selected in this draft, but none that would wow you from the jump. Right. Do you you see anybody – they took a lot of more high school players in the third day, especially as it went on, because obviously you you just – take flyers on high school guys, and you hope that maybe they'll actually sign with you. But do you see any of those high school guys potentially signing with the Phils? And if you could pick one that maybe you think would do that and it could be interesting to watch, is there anyone in that group? It's probably Holmes. Okay. And Holmes is pretty much the lone guy out of high school that I would consider that was drafted and and is going to sign at this point. They did end up selecting two more guys later in the draft who 
would have been interesting, but they were going to be day one, day two picks, and they didn't end up doing that. So Saint left-hander Shane Dronin, who's got really good command at 88 to 90, and he a really good changeup. Change up. So he's got him in the 23rd round. He's going to end up going to Florida State on his commitment. commitment. And then Kyle Hurd, who selected in the 34th round, should have been a first and second round pick. Mm-hmm. But he tore his meniscus back in the winter. And when he came back to play, hey, he was sitting 88 to 90 instead of touching 91 to 95 like he was before or with really good off-speed stuff. So he's pro- he should probably go to USC. I know that there's been hints out there that the Phillies want to sign him, but I doubt they'll have enough money to convince him to get out of his commitment to USC where he should honestly go to get healthy. So those are so those are two names that the Phillies won't end up signing, I think, but I found intriguing anyway. But other than that, they didn't draft many high schoolers in this class, as I would consider have great projection. Action, and that's and that's mainly because they kept going with the college juniors and college seniors in this class. So that's basically where we are are at now. Last year was the year that they took high schoolers. This year was all about going back to the college philosophy. Well, well I guess at the at the very least, they uh, added a lot of depth to the benches of teams like Lakewood and Williamsport and the Gulf Coast Phillies, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, and that's, and that's mainly what most of this is, particularly on day three. Day yeah. three is all about adding the depth. At to, you know, Williamsport, the GCL, L Phillies, or Lakewood, just future, future picks. And more than likely, you only end up signing 30 of the 40 that you select, right, or something like that, anywhere between 30 to 34. Or, And, you know, day three is about that. Day two is about more potential. Day one is about the guys you really think are going to make it to the majors. And that's basically how the draft works out. Oh. Well, uh, whatever uh, whatever happens with all these guys, I'm sure we're going to be foaming and waiting and hoping and praying because everybody's already asking about Mickey Moniak coming to the majors, which is ridiculous. But that's how we no, operate. Not right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, Jeff, sorry, go ahead. And, and you know what? I can't wait to watch these guys because that's going to be the next assignment for me for the rest of the summer because, you know, the draft files are now over and the only things left to do are, you know, monitor all the guys in the system, go watch, go to as many games as possible and watch these guys live and see how they do. Ooh, and gear up for the number one overall pick next year because that's where we're <laughs> heading at this point. Looks like it at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff Israel of philliesminorthoughts.com. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, no problem, Tim. After my talk with Jeff Israel of philliesminorthoughts.com, I wanted to come back on the draft and just sort of bounce around some things about the draft with Dan Walsh here of philliesnation.com. Dan, so did you follow the draft at all? I mean, you know, we're, we're average fans. I kind of followed in and out during Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, wanted to see what they were doing and get a sense of who they were picking. 
Um, and obviously, you know, we cover the site and we want to make sure we know what we're talking about. But did you follow a lot of the draft? I followed it on Twitter. So take that, you know, as meaning whatever, whatever it is that you think that means. Um, so, you know, I was following live hearing kind of the names of the players. But, um, you know, unfortunately, we don't get a chance to see most of these players, you know, when they're auditioning until kind of the world sees them, you know, because yeah. we don't really have insider access like that. So I'm relying on kind of the the feedback that other scouts and other writers have provided who have actually seen them. Yeah, this is the disclaimer portion where we say that we know nothing about watching college and high school players because we don't have that sort of job. We don't do that all the time, and it's hard to kind of get a grasp on all of it. So take what we're saying as just sort of fans bouncing around some things. Um, all right, so Adam Hazley, the first-round pick. I actually kind of liked the pick in that Hazley uh, seems like a pretty advanced outfielder with five tools. He can move up the system pretty quickly. But as Jeff Israel had said, and I agree with it, the philosophy is weird because I feel like the Phillies already have quite a few toolsy outfielders like Mickey Boniak, uh, Cornelius Randolph is kind of out there. Um, and, of course, in the major league level, a little bit under that, you have obviously Adam, uh, Aaron Altair and Odubel Herrera and... Nick Williams, do you do you agree with Hazley as a philo- as a philosophical uh, sort of selection? I have a hard time complaining if they draft anyone who can play up the middle of the diamond. Okay. To be completely honest with you, so anybody that can play middle infield, catcher, uh, center field, you know what I mean? Because those players tend to have the skills that can translate elsewhere on the field, you know. And, and if you have guys there who can just kind of be average players, to be completely honest. You could fill in at the corners with your power, you know, with your guys that can drive in runs um, and kind of fill out your lineup that way. So I don't mind a toolsy outfielder, especially a guy like Hazley, who seems more developed than having like the raw tools that we were talking about for so many years in a row and all those players that never quite developed. He seems more developed than a lot of those players were in those old like kind of dud drafts that we had for a few years. Yeah, and, and there was a lot of talk before the draft of the Phillies potentially picking Pavin. Uh, the first baseman from Virginia, and I was kind of worried about that because, you know, not that we don't need another first baseman in the system because we probably don't at this point, but you're taking a guy who pretty much is pigeonholed to being a first baseman or maybe a left fielder if that doesn't pan out. And so you're really making it tough for any development because you need that kid to basically hit 400 up until he gets to the majors. Uh, otherwise, you're just you're just hoping and praying that this guy you know works out somehow. Uh, so I, I'm much I'm much more of a fan of picking you know as you said up the middle guy a center fielder, shortstop or catcher than just a corner infielder or anything like that. Right, and, and you don't tend to draft based on need, right? Because what the team needs now they might not need in four years when these right. guys are coming up. Hazley probably less than four years if we're lucky. Um, but yeah, so you take players with tools and talent and skills that will translate to higher levels of play to other positions if they need to. Um, and usually center fielders, you know, are, are among the most athletic guys in the field. So you can see that being the case. So while, while yes, we're looking five years down the road, it looks like a lot of the players that the Phillies have drafted might come to fruition in the next two or three years. Um, there's a lot of college players in this draft. And I was talking to Jeff, and he said, yeah, there's a lot of depth in this draft. Guys will probably fill out benches and, you know, not really make any waves, and there's no real standout names here. Are you okay with the Phillies kind of drafting a lot of guys who are probably going to fill out rosters for the next couple of years? Or 
do you wish that maybe you saw you know a name that just jumped out at you and was like a real high risk sort of pick with a big bonus potential? I can understand the appeal of wanting that kind of player. Uh, you know, a guy who has extremely high upside. Uh, you know, but may, might not reach it, but then you still have that potential to flash that. But what I want to remind people of, you know, we all kind of had have Scott Kingery fever right now. And yeah. the way he was talked about when he was drafted was very similar to this. As a guy with tools, he'll move through the system quickly, you know, not a ton of upside, but a capable baseball player, you know. So you get these guys with strong foundations, and maybe some of them will break out. You know, maybe we will luck into a guy like that. And then even if none of them do, we still have, uh, you know, guys who can play a position, you know, hopefully reach the majors because you have to remember, like, how few of these guys actually will also. So um, projectable talent, to me, is always valuable, especially for a team who are building in the manner that the Phillies seem to be building, which is build through depth and then decide to use free agency to sign superstars where we need them. Right. So maybe in a year or two, we're all kind of looking forward to the free agents, you know, whether it's Manny Machado, whether it's Bryce Harper, you know, whether it's you Darvish, you know, and fill in through free agency. And but we already have this all this depth of all these capable players who right. are grown in-house. Yeah, that, that's definitely the most, I think, grading. I want to say grading, but probably the, the toughest thing to swallow when you're a Phillies fan right now is you have all these players in the system who. None of them really strike superstar tones, but they all seem to be capable, and capable is not going to win you 90, 95 games. It's going to win you 60 games. So <laughs> it, it's hard you know, when you're, when you're following a team on a major league level and you have a lot of capable guys playing for the team. Uh, it doesn't really work, but we're good there, I guess. Um, I, I don't know if you know anything about Jake Holmes, who they, the 11th round pick, the shortstop from Pinnacle High School in Arizona, who has signed a deal for $500,000, which is way above the slot. Uh, it's sort of like fourth-round money, and he was drafted in the 11th round. Uh, obviously, the Phillies you know, wanted to take a big risk with him, and they got that one. He seems to be kind of the biggest upside player that they may have drafted other than Hazley. Um, he's a shortstop. You know, what, do you, what do you want out of a guy like Jake Holmes? You know, he'll probably slide into the Gulf Coast League this year. What do you want to see from a high school kid? Do you want to see him, you know, really, like, jump through the system quickly? Do you want to see, you know, slow development? You know, we have, you know, a lot of kids who are drafted as high schoolers who are just now finally getting into the mid-levels, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, what, do you, what do you want to see out of a high school guy? Well, I'm going to give the kind of boring answer and say it really depends on the player. Some yeah. guys come into the system and they just kind of take off, and if you move too slowly with them, you're kind of just getting in their way, Right. But other guys, you have to remember, they're still some of them are still 17 years old. You know, they're still children. They can't even vote yet. You know what I mean? So <laughs> they, they're adjusting to all kinds of things, whether it's increased talent or even just like living away from their parents. Yeah, you know, yeah. so other players need a little more time and you need to age them a bit. And uh, some of them still you have to wait for their bodies to finish developing. You know, so some of these players are like scrawny you know, like six and a half feet tall, but they weigh 90 pounds, you know, so you wait for them to kind of build up some mass and then you'll see maybe, for example, maybe power will come later for some of these guys and we're not really projecting it now. So yeah. it really depends on the player how quickly you want them to move. And I think that kind of the other revealing part of this question is, you know, the, the bigger picture is how soon do we expect the Phillies to need more talent in their major league team, right? So how soon will it actually matter 
how good they are or, or when these players are ready. So maybe them taking college players is, or, you know, so many college players is indicative of, you know, we're looking at two to three years before we're, before we're trying to buy for a playoff spot instead sure. of taking all high school players. And then it's more like five or six. Sure. Sure. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to debate this stuff and I'm sure by next week we won't remember any of these guys' names. Uh, but that's how it works, and then we'll kind of come back on them next year when guys start to make real waves and get promoted to different places. That'll be fun to watch, and we'll talk more about that as that happens, of course. Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast, as always. All right, happy to do it. My thanks to Dan Walsh for coming on the podcast today. Also, thanks to Jeff Israel of philliesminorthoughts.com for coming on. Check out philliesminorthoughts.com, really great website about the prospects, minor leagues, draft, all that great stuff. Thanks to bensound.com for the music for the podcast. I want to turn your attention to Sixto Sanchez, who recently came back from a minor injury, and in the last week he has two starts, and in those starts, 10 innings, give up one run, and four strikeouts over those two starts. No strikeouts in his last start, but not a big deal. For the season, Sanchez has a 2.88 ERA with 32 strikeouts. And three walks. So that's pretty good stuff for Sixto, who's down in Lakewood. Probably continue the rest of the year down in Lakewood, but for the Phillies' top pitching prospect, all good news is he's back from a small neck injury. You can find the Phillies Nation podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and on YouTube at youtube.com slash philliesnation. Find us at Phillies Nation on Twitter, Phillies Nation. And Instagram at philliesnation underscore. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. And of course, go to philliesnation.com for all of your news, rumors, and so much more. Another week, another group of losses probably, right? Well, at least summer's here, right? Happy summer, everybody. Go to a ball game. Go to a minor league game. Check out your local Phillies affiliate. You will not be disappointed by what you see in Redding or Lehigh Valley or Lakewood or even Clearwater if you're down in Florida or Williamsport's coming up soon. It's time for minor league ball to get its due, man. All right, Phillies Nation podcast, we will talk to you next week. I am Tim Malcolm. See ya. See ya.